Hi everyone, thank you all for joining. Today we have the great honor and privilege of having Mr. Edward Cutler with us. Mr. Cutler was diagnosed in 2013 with stage four non-small cell lung cancer. He's a native of Tampa, Florida and went to Pennsylvania for college and met his wife, Donna, there. After getting married and serving in the U.S. Navy in the Vietnam War, he went back to Tampa and worked as a certified public accountant and tax consultant for over 50 years until his retirement earlier this year. Mr. Cutler and his wife have two adult children and three grandchildren, all of whom live on opposite coasts of the USA. He is joining us today with the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative to share his story. Mr. Cutler, thank you so much for your time and willingness to be here with us, as well as for your service in the Navy. Thank you, Priyanka. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you and, and everyone else on, on the podcast. Uh, my story began back in uh, 2012, actually, um, even though my diagnosis was not until 2013. Uh, I had no symptoms whatsoever uh, prior to diagnosis. And what led to that diagnosis was seeing an ad in a magazine for older adults, which stated that every man over the age of 50 who had ever smoked should be screened for abdominal aortic aneurysm. And since I met the criteria, I asked my primary care physician to order the screening. Subsequently, I got the results back that said there was no aneurysm, but in a footnote to the report, it was stated that there was a mass in my liver and follow-up was recommended. That was the beginning of my cancer journey. There were a lot of blood draws, x-rays, scans, and an MRI followed by a meeting with my primary care doctor and a, and a GI specialist. Their opinion was that a mass was, cancer, was cancerous, but that a biopsy was necessary to determine what we were dealing with and what course of action we might take. Before going any further with them, I decided to get a second opinion at a large NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center right here in the city where I live in Tampa. After the initial consult, a biopsy was ordered and performed, followed a week later by receiving the results. It was then that my wife and I learned that the mass in my liver was actually a metastasis from my left lung, that I had non-small cell adenocarcinoma, and that I had no known genetic mutations. Due to the fact that my primary tumor was in my lung, I was then transferred into the cancer center's thoracic clinic, met with the department head, and then assigned to a medical oncologist. The medical oncologist and we spoke about a treatment plan. A clinical trial was actually offered to me before we even went any further than that. However, I only had a weekend to decide whether I wanted to try to get in that trial or not. Uh, we, uh, we conferred with uh, one of my wife's relatives who is a uh, thoracic surgeon and uh, another uh, close friend uh, who, is, who is also a, uh, 
an oncologist, a radiation oncologist. And uh, we decided that we wanted to go ahead and try the clinical trial. Unfortunately, the weekend passed. And when I called back on Monday, I was told that the trial recruitment had ended and the last spaces had been filled. Uh, that took a little bit of uh, the breath away from me. Uh, but we decided on a schedule of chemotherapy and, uh, and that's when, when my treatment began. After four cycles of chemo, one of the chemo drugs in the cocktail was dropped and I was then considered to be on maintenance. And this maintenance treatment uh, lasted a total of 16 months, at which time it stopped working. At that point now, uh, we're at the end of 2014 and uh, there are no other FDA approved treatments for for my specific cancer. Only some clinical trials that uh, might be available. So we started to look at those. And uh, I was able to begin treatment in, in the first clinical trial in January of 2015. At that point, uh, it was a two-drug cocktail. One of the drugs has since been approved by FDA and is now in common use. The other is, is a, I guess it's a companion drug that's used in a lot of other treatments. Um, the uh, The results of that trial were, were good from the standpoint of, of tumor size reduction. In, in seven months, my tumor size had been reduced by 70%. The side effects though were pretty severe and got so severe that I ended up being hospitalized and ultimately had to withdraw from from that trial because the, my oncologist was, was fearful that uh, the, the side effects would return and, and be as fierce or fiercer in the second time around. So I did withdraw from that trial and uh, had to wait for, I guess it was about five months until a second trial became available. And I began that second trial in January of 2016. That was a single drug immunotherapy trial. It is the only immunotherapy drug that I'm aware of that is oral. And uh, I wish every, every immunotherapy drug were, were oral like that because it was just so much easier uh, to, to take rather than having to go in every three or four weeks for, for an infusion to be able to, to pop a capsule twice a day. The, uh, that trial continued on until November of this past year, at which time it terminated. 
And because when the trial terminated, there were still two people participating who had good results during that trial. Uh, each of us was granted compassionate use, a single patient treatment program. And that began concurrently with the termination of the trial. So I've been on continuous treatment with that drug now since uh, early 2016. The first five years, well, the first year of that treatment, things were kind of, uh, kind of bumpy up and down. Uh, but after a year, my cancer stabilized and I remained stable for five years. Through the end of the trial into the beginning of the single patient program. And uh, up until April. And in April, my, after a, a, that latest scan in April, my oncologist said that uh, he saw no evidence of disease. And that really blew us both away. Uh, you know, we were just praying that you know, we, I would remain stable for a very, very long period of time. Uh, I was not expecting you know, my, you know, my tumor to totally disappear at any point during my life. So uh, we continue on, I'm still in treatment and I had my latest scan just last week and it showed uh, continued NED, no evidence of disease. So uh, that's basically uh, where, you know, what my journey was. Uh, you know, the, the diagnosis obviously was, was devastating. Even though I had been a smoker, uh, I knew that there was a chance that I could get cancer, but uh, there, there was no such thing that I was aware of as lung cancer screening. My doctors knew I was a smoker. They never suggested that I get screened in any way, shape or form sure they they always uh, recommended that I stop smoking and uh, you know, I did and I started and I stopped and I started but uh, ultimately it took the diagnosis to end my smoking and, and uh, yes I have been smoke free for you know, a long time now um, I never knew or ever heard of anybody who had lung cancer when I was diagnosed. I was a little fish in a big pond, had no one else's experience upon which I really could rely. My wife and family and a few friends were my support system in the early years of my treatment and my cancer center had social workers and assigned me to one to help guide me through treatments and potential side effects. But I had no way of communicating with other people with lung cancer. And that uh, was something that 
I had to make better. I had to find a way to to make better on that. Uh, what motivates me to tell my story is that I've proven that a stage four lung cancer diagnosis is not a death sentence. Next month, I will be celebrating my ninth cancer anniversary. I've had good quality of life and been able to enjoy family milestone events. I've continued working full time through my through my treatments until I retired earlier this year, and I've been able to share my experiences with others in support groups that I've found enjoyed and with newly diagnosed patients who need a mentor. In addition to providing support for other lung cancer patients, I'm also involved in lung cancer awareness activities, uh, advocacy with our federal and state legislators to gain increased funding for lung cancer and other cancer research, and doing some volunteer work with my cancer center. The principal misconception that I had about lung cancer before I was diagnosed was that only people who smoked could get lung cancer. And, and I think most people still feel that way today, unless they have been touched by someone who has lung cancer. But I, I subsequently learned that nearly 20% of lung cancer patients are never smokers. They, you know, they've uh, been exposed to secondhand smoke, or they they live in a house or have lived in a house that uh, had radon, uh, other uh, toxic chemicals to which they've been exposed, uh, and that caused their cancer. So you know, we've, uh, I think we have a long way to go to. Uh, really expose the public that it's not just smokers that get lung cancer. If you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. Uh, let's see, what else do you want me to say? No, I completely agree, Mr. Cutler. Um, like you were saying, I think there there exists a stigma, um, unfortunately, around lung cancer that um, that smoking is associated with lung cancer, that only smokers can get lung cancer. But I think it's so important that we educate people that there are other risk factors for lung cancer other than smoking, like exposure to radon or exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, um, and a variety of other factors that can um, also cause lung cancer. So it, um, some, some, it previously has been called a smoker's disease. And I think it, we really need to move away from terms like that and associations between lung cancer and smoking, because um, as you just said, anyone with lungs can get lung cancer um, and, and no one deserves it. Uh, so um, I think educating people about these other risk factors and finding ways to modify the current lung cancer screening guidelines. Right now, um, lung cancer screening is only recommended for individuals between the ages of 50 and 80 who have a heavy smoking history. Um, the requirement is 
20 pack years or more, and those who are current smokers or quit within the last 15 years. So right now, lung cancer screening is um, by the USPSTF only recommended for individuals who have a heavy smoking history. But I think a lot of research is being done right now in the field and a lot of individuals are, are finding, a lot of um, research teams are finding that um, there are lots of other risk factors and um, variables that we need to account for as well when, when determining an individual's risk for lung cancer. So um, we're really hopeful that um, with the research, we'll be able to build better lung cancer prediction models, um, as well as um, possibly uh, modified screening guidelines that can help identify high-risk individuals who are also, who might not be um, smokers. So I think you bring up a a very important point there. Yeah, the, the other thing I think is that yeah, the, the stigma does continue and, and public misconceptions are out there because of it. Uh, somehow the advertising that we see today impresses upon the viewers that it's, long, it's smoking. You know, if you stop smoking, you're not going to get lung cancer. And that's not necessarily true either. Uh, you, you see these horror stories, these pictures of, of people who have COPD or, or have had other, other issues as a result of smoking. And, and that's what they're, they're pressing on. And, and rather than pressing on the fact that it's not just smoking that causes lung cancer. That's, that's what we need to get changed. The, but you know, the public misconceptions have relegated the biggest cancer killer in the U.S. to the lower end of federal funding for research. It's made it harder for people to get screened for lung cancer before it's spread to other parts of the body. And you know, if we can change those perceptions, if we can impress upon our legislators to, you know, to provide more funding, to change the, the focus, uh, that, you know, that's got to be the best way to, to improve our, our situation. We've got the least amount of funding and I've spent I've spent time not going to Washington, but but uh, having conversations uh, uh, with with my legislator and, and senators uh, virtually about about funding. I have gone to Tallahassee uh, to uh, to lobby our legislators for the state of Florida for more funding for cancer in general and specifically for, for lung cancer. Um, and uh, now most recently, uh, I've uh, gotten involved in, in helping to get some legislation proposed in, in Washington uh, to fund a lung cancer screening, a mobile lung cancer screening unit for my cancer center that'll go all over the state. And uh, that 
legislation is still in subcommittee. I think it has been approved in the subcommittee and, and is now moving into the appropriations committee uh, for uh, determination for the uh, 2023 federal budget. And if we can get something like that going, there, there are just so many people who don't have access that, that we can, can get moving, that we can, that we can help. That's amazing um, to hear and just want to thank you so much for your, your work and your advocacy work. It really is helping a lot of people. And um, as you mentioned, I think a lack of access um, or difficulty to access screening centers is a big um, barrier for a lot of individuals. Um, in some states, they don't have a lot of screening centers and might be a couple couple hours away and it's, it's difficult during the work week um, to be able to go make those appointments. So I think a mobile, yeah, I think a mobile lung cancer screening um, program or, or van would be extremely helpful. And and we haven't really had many of these um, in the U.S. So it, or any pilot programs like this um, before. And so I think being, just being able to start or, or pilot a program like this would give us a lot of information on um, whether people would are receptive to efforts like this, um, the uptake. And so I think uh, w the work that you're doing is is wonderful. So thank you again. And, and you mentioned um, how uh, not a lot of people think about get, um, getting lung cancer if they've quit smoking or have never smoked. And, you know, I, I think this is a similar story that we hear from a lot of patients. We recently had Miss um, Diane Colton on our podcast, and she's based in Canada, but um, she had a very similar story. She um, had, had, she was a former smoker, but had quit for a long time. And her primary care doctor actually had told her that she didn't have to worry about lung cancer because she had quit smoking. And so it was never on her radar. Um, and she, she didn't get a, a lung cancer screening um, test because her primary care provider didn't um, think it would it would ever you know come up but I, I think in terms on that line I think it's really important that we also educate all healthcare providers about lung, the risk factors for lung cancer symptoms of lung cancer who should get lung cancer screening because um, you know patients really do trust their doctors and if we are able to um, educate doctors about the screening guidelines um, and if they have a patient who meets the screening guidelines or might be at higher risk for other reasons, just that simple conversation um, about, you know, maybe getting lung cancer screening in the future um, could be really helpful. So I think that is an area also that we can we can work on. I agree that that is very, very important. The, uh, you know, the primary care doctor is the one who's in charge until until there's a diagnosis you know, and you know if if that doctor isn't proactive his patients aren't gonna survive right. so you know yes we need to need to uh we need to educate the primary care docs a lot better than than they have been educated in, in that regard, uh, they you know, they know that there are, at least in, in large large communities, they know that there are screening facilities available. And if they don't know it, 
they're falling down on the job. Yeah, I completely agree. And and one question that I wanted to ask was, um, you touched upon this a little bit, but what was the experience like when you received your lung cancer diagnosis? Maybe what were some questions that were going through your mind just after you heard um, that you had lung cancer? Well, as I said, uh, you know, that diagnosis was was devastating. Uh, the the GI doctor who actually gave me the diagnosis uh, was did not have a great bedside manner. Uh, he was very matter of fact. Uh, he said, uh, "You have lung cancer, and." You need to get your affairs in order because you're going to die. Well, that totally, really blew us both away, to be honest. Uh, I had a million questions. You know, where, where was I going to go from here? Uh, he said, yes, I'm transferring you to the thoracic clinic and they're going to take care of you there. So, yeah, that. When I got to the doctors in the, in the thoracic clinic, I had a much better feeling for uh, what was, you know, what my future might be. They, you know, they were very, uh, very open that uh, there were a lot of different treatments available and, uh, and they had a lot of success in in uh, patients having longevity. Now, I was 67 at the time, uh, and uh, I had young grandchildren, and I really wanted to be able to spend time with them. And I'm very, very lucky that uh, I've been able to do that. Even though they, they live far away, uh, we're able to, to travel to, to visit them. Uh, except during the pandemic, which flash on on so many things uh, that included. Uh, but earlier this summer, we did travel to Pennsylvania to to see my second granddaughter graduate from high school, and that was that was wonderful. Uh, and uh, next year, God willing, uh, we'll see my older granddaughter graduate from college and move on from there. But the uh, going, going back to when I was diagnosed, I was scared. I was really scared. And my wife was too. But uh, we decided we were going to, to fight fight for everything. You mentioned earlier, oh, sorry. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, um, but you mentioned earlier that your primary care provider just said that you really need to get your affairs in order and you only had nine to 12 months left to live. So in what ways did your life change after hearing that and being diagnosed with lung cancer? Well, it, it wasn't the primary care doctor. It was the uh, the first oncologist that I met. But uh, 
Yeah, we, we had, you know, we had our documents fairly well in order, even at, at that point in time. Uh, of course, I, you know, I rushed to review uh, my will, uh, uh, medical surrogate documents, uh, you know, whether I wanted a, uh, a DNR and, and, and those those things just to make sure that they were properly executed and and, and were current and, and you know, were, you know, were what my current feelings were. And so we got those rearranged you know, fairly quickly. Right after hearing your diagnosis, um, obviously it's it's a whirlwind of emotions. You don't really you can't really perceive what's going on necessarily, but what would you say looking back are some questions you believe are important to ask your PCP after receiving a lung cancer diagnosis? Uh, well, in my case, uh, first question I asked him in actuality, I asked him, why didn't you see this coming before now? E even though it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a lung cancer screening that, that caught my diagnosis. It was something that, you know, I saw an ad for and asked about. He, he was not proactive at all. Yeah, he, I thought he was a good, he was a good doctor, but he fell down on the job. So, you know, I felt that, you know, that was something that you know I could not I couldn't live with that with 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 him as being my primary care doctor anymore and and I did change doctors pretty rapidly once you know, once I got myself situated and then knew where I was headed or I thought I knew where I was headed uh, with you know with my lung cancer treatments Following your um, lung cancer diagnosis, did you share it with anyone? Um, and if so, how did you start that conversation? Because I know some some patients and, and families of patients with lung cancer um, struggle to, you know, uh, figure out how to how to tell people since it's hard for everyone to hear. No, it's not easy to you know to talk about it. Um, at least initially, it wasn't to me. Uh, of course, I told my my two adult children. Um, my grandchildren, uh, I did not tell. Uh, at that time, they were, you know, they were still, well, the oldest one was still relatively young. She was, I think, 12, 12 or 13 at the time. And uh, you know, the youngest one was only four. So obviously, he he couldn't understand what what I would be talking about. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, it, it, I did tell my children, and, and they were very supportive. Uh, and you know, whatever whatever we needed, you know, they would be there to help, even though they lived far away. And then beyond that, uh, I started telling a, a few close friends 
and, and other relatives. And uh, I felt comfortable doing it. it was surprisingly comfortable. I felt that uh, they needed to know what I was going through and, uh, and that uh, if I needed help, would they be there to be there for me? And uh, pretty much everybody was was uh, was online with that. You know, they were they were they were there to to help. You know, if, if necessary. And uh, you know, as time goes on, you know, I've told more and more people. Uh, I'm very very involved with. Uh, my high school class and uh, you know, our reunion committee I'm a member of and I've told everybody you know, on, on that committee, uh, basically at the very outset, uh, you know, at, at that time, uh, we were planning our 50th class reunion. And I told my wife, Donna, I said, uh, I'm going to that reunion come hell or high water, even if you have to take me there on a gurney, I am going to be there. Thankfully, she didn't have to get a gurney to take me, and, and I was able to, to enjoy that, that reunion. Uh, and uh, we're now planning our 60th reunion, and uh, you know, that's going to be coming up in the fall. And uh, you know, I've told a number of my other classmates beside, beside that reunion committee and you know and other you know other friends all the time and uh had many many offers to you know whenever you need me i'll be there and uh fortunately i haven't had to call on anybody except on a very rare occasion but i, th I know that they would be there if i need them in what ways can family and friends help support um, people diagnosed with lung cancer? Uh, I think there are a lot of things that they can do. Uh, I think it's important that they not say, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. That's the worst thing that they can say. Uh, because that, that puts the onus on you as a patient to, you know, to, you know, to, Say, well, I need you to do this or that or that or that. Uh, instead, they should be asking the question: uh, Can I go to the grocery store for you? And you know what? You know what things do you want me to get at the grocery store for you? Uh, you know, can I you know, take your clothes to the cleaners? Uh, or uh, for someone who's young with children, can I take your kids or pick them up from school? Those things are just so important and so meaningful to people. Uh, can I take you to treatment? Uh, or when when can I take you to treatment? You know, let, let me know and, and I'll be there. Those, those I think are, are the biggest things that, that uh, people can do to be helpful. What would you say are some of the current challenges the lung cancer community faces? Oh, well, let's see. Overcoming the stigma, 
is number one. How do we overcome the stigma? We just have to keep fighting and, and educating people. That uh, that's the primary one, you know. And I think public awareness in and of itself needs to be wider spread. The, the commercials that we see on, on TV don't tell the real story. They're telling the story that you know, if you smoked, you're going to get lung cancer. And they don't say anything about the non-smoker. Unfortunately, there are a lot of non-smokers. Uh, that number is growing. And uh, I think that the average age of lung cancer patients is getting smaller and less. Uh, and, and, uh, I've seen so many in, in the course of my experience with, uh, with support groups. I've seen so many young people in their 30s and early 40s uh, with lung cancer. Now, I know there are some that are even younger than that. I've not, I've not had the occasion to, uh, to meet, meet them. Uh, but, uh, you know, everyone, you know, everyone still thinks that, you know, lung cancer is the disease of older smokers. Yeah, the average age is 70 still, but it's, it is declining. So I think those, those are really the two main areas that, that need to be worked on there to, you know, to, to be better. We need to get more people involved in the cancer community. Completely agree. I think you guys are doing a great job from what I've seen and uh, getting more young people involved in, in spreading you know, the word on, on lung cancer awareness and, and advocacy. And I think that's what it's going to take. It, it, is, it is you guys. You're, you're the future of, of the lung cancer community, whether you are a patient or just an advocate, you are the future. I completely agree. And um, thank you for your, your kind words. It really means a lot. And speaking about the younger population, um, I, I think it, one of the reasons it's so important to educate the upcoming generation is because not only will it help raise awareness among themselves and um, and keep them aware of the risk factors and symptoms of lung cancer, but I think it's also important and um, moving away from the stigma that we have right now, just by educating people from a young age about how um, lung cancer is um, not a smoker's disease and that anyone can get it. I think that is that can help us um, remove the stigma that we, that currently exists around lung cancer. And what would be your recommendation um, in how we can best raise awareness in the younger generation? Is there anything particular that you think would be effective? I think uh, what you guys are doing is a step in the right direction. You know, uh, 
I know that uh, uh, friends of mine have younger children who are who are now getting involved in, in awareness. They're getting involved in in uh, uh, ribbon building projects, you know, like like this one behind me. And uh, you know, I think when, when they are involved in things like that, they're, they're going to get uh, more involved in the, in the overall awareness program and, uh, and the advocacy program, too. I think both of them go together. And for someone who has a loved one who recently got diagnosed with lung cancer, um, do you have any advice for how they can best support them and help them? I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, offer whatever assistance you know you might be able to do for 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 the relative. Bring them a meal. Take them out to dinner. If, if they're up to it and uh, uh, you know, do their grocery shopping for them and uh, and things like that and just show them that, that you care about them because uh, in too many cases uh, that lung cancer patient still feels very very much alone at least in, in the early stages of, of a diagnosis. Uh, I know I did even though I had, you know, my wife and my children as, as good support, uh, I still felt alone. What advice do you have for other patients? Wow, that's that's <laughs> that's a pretty open-ended question. Ah, uh, I I think learning as much as you can about your about your disease about available treatment programs about uh, clinical trials knowing knowing where to go who to ask if you have questions you know you can't always ask your oncologist you know is do you have a nurse navigator uh, that you can ask questions and, and get pretty quick answers to. Um, and uh, I think those are the important things, really. Just you know, get as much as information as you can. Because the more you know, the better able you are to make a decision on, on what would be best for you. Thank you for that. Um, but I think that wraps up our questionnaire section. Um, thank you so much, Mr. Cutler, for taking time out of your day to share your story with us. Uh, you're welcome. Um, now I would like to open the floor for our participants to ask you any questions they may have regarding you or your story, and if you feel comfortable answering them. So if you guys would like to ask Mr. Cutler a question, feel free to put it in the chat or unmute.
I, I received a question from the audience. The person asks, um, Mr. Cutler, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, what are some pieces of advice that you would provide for individuals immediately diagnosed with lung cancer? And what are some of the best questions that they can ask their doctor right after the moment? I think the, the most important thing to ask your oncologist is what you know what kind you know what kind of treatment is this that, that you're recommending to me what what do you project that it will do for me uh, what kind of side effects will I get from this treatment what do you project the benefits of this treatment will be for me? And you know, do you have any idea how long this, this particular treatment might last? I know these are questions that are, are pretty subjective even today. Uh, but uh, you know, because there are so many so many treatments out there and, and and each one is is dependent on each individual's situation uh you know if an individual has a genetic mutation of one kind or another uh, that obviously is is the most important thing to know uh, even before you start treatment uh, and diagnosed uh, They've done a tissue biopsy and they've sent it off to testing or hopefully they've sent it off for testing. And uh, the first question that I would be asking my doctor is how soon are we going to get these results back so that we will know what the course of treatment might be because they can all be very different. I believe those those are the, more, the most important things to be asking. What are you looking forward to most in the next upcoming months? Upcoming months, uh, continued net. Uh, I won't have another scan until September, but. Uh, I'm betting that it's going to be just as good as the last one. My prayer is that the drug that I'm still taking now will continue to work. No problems. And uh, if it doesn't, then I'm hoping that there, there will be that next treatment available to me. There's so many things in clinical trials today that uh, might work for me. They might not, I don't know. I haven't really, I've not researched them because I've been so successful with what I've been doing that I, you know, I didn't think that it was appropriate to, to, to jump the gun. But, you know, it is in, you know, in my thinking that uh, yeah, I need to look forward and uh, hopefully I'll never need that, that next treatment. But I hope that it will be available when I do need it.
mean, we wish you the best of luck, but that wraps up our Q&A session. So again, thank you so much for your willingness to share your story and perspective on many of the pressing issues in the lung cancer community. We appreciate the work that you are doing to help raise awareness about lung cancer. Thank you, Greg. And thank you everyone for joining our podcast. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alc.org. We also encourage you to join our monthly newsletter where we will share updates on upcoming projects within our organization. Please fill out this Google form in the chat if you'd like to be added to our mailing list. And before we end this, we also like to offer a brochure highlighting some key information about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. If you find this helpful or know of anyone who might benefit from this information included in the brochure, feel free to share it. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you, Mr. Cutler. Thanks a lot.